Let's join in prayer together. Lord God, we thank you for the blessings upon us today. So much to be thankful for. For your spirit at work amongst us and your blessing of being able to come to a text like we have before us this morning. So helpful. Please help us to understand it, to grasp it, to grow in it that we together might rejoice even more in your saving love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're not going back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, but instead thinking about a very important text from John's first letter. I want to do this for a couple of reasons. First, because we've had new members join this morning, by profession of faith and baptism and it will be beneficial for them and the rest of us to think about a text like we have. And second, my reasoning is that here is a text that will certainly tie in with our celebration of the Lord's Supper because the truths in the text are ones that we should understand and be familiar with and they most certainly apply to our approach as we come to the Lord's table. Now, because we're jumping straight into the first letter of John, it's important that we understand John's purpose in writing and what kind of letter this is and who is writing it. And the answer comes back, it's this, that John the Apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, was writing his letter to a group of believers who were struggling with the topic of sin in their lives as believers, struggling with sin in their lives as believers. And they were struggling because false teachers who came to be known as Gnostics, that's with a capital G, taught on the one hand that how you lived didn't matter because being a believer was not about the flesh, not about the body, it was about the spirit. And since, they said, we've been made perfect in our spirits, how we live in the flesh doesn't matter. You can have fellowship with God and you can live immorally because the flesh has nothing to do with the spirit. Then also, on the other hand, some of them taught that because of the higher knowledge that is received, revealed, through their secret teachings, you could reach a state of perfection and you could live without sin completely. Now, while they said that in different ways in the background to this letter, John wrote all that he did to show that such teaching was incorrect, was wrong. It's important to note well the premise or the thesis that John gives us upon which the rest of our text hangs this morning. And the thesis is there in verse 5. Chapter 1, 1 John, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now if you're quick to notice things in scripture, you'll note the theme of Light and darkness is so prominent in John's gospel, in his prologue. 
And so it's a theme that John likes to use all through his gospel and now in his letter. And he does that to point out that God and sin cannot be mixed together and held in balance. Just as much you cannot have light and darkness and put them together. Just as God has no sin within his character and he cannot sin because he is utterly and completely holy, so he says any teaching that seeks to mix these things together, such as what the false teachers were saying, was impossible. God cannot sin. God has no darkness in him at all. So believers who claim to live and walk in him cannot have any darkness within them. And if they do, they certainly cannot claim that they are walking in the light, that is, walking with God. Now, if I were to leave it there, I would leave both you and me in something of a predicament, wouldn't I? If God is light and has no darkness in him, how can I say that I am him and walking in the light if there is darkness within me? That's the issue. How can I say that? While I will get to the solution about that, which John also gives us, so that all of us may have hope and none of us who belong to Christ need to fear, I want you to sit with that and feel the weight of that, feel the tension of that. If God is light and has no darkness, and I am one who is called to be with him and having him live in me, then how can it be that sin still lives in me, that darkness could be found if you looked inside my heart? Surely the fact that there is darkness in me rules me out and rules you out. Well, it does and it doesn't. It does and it doesn't. That's why you'll see in verses 6, 8, 9 and 10, John brings out this expression, if we say, and in each of these proposed scenarios, John brings out a response. If we say this, then the truth is that. If we say that, then the truth is this. It happens four times in the text and each time it happens, John explains for us and applies for us some aspect of the gospel truth of verse 7 that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So think about this again. Feel the weight and the tension between the reality of sin on one hand and the free offer of forgiveness on the other. The tension between the darkness that is in you and the fact that John says you can walk in the light and have fellowship with God. So the question becomes, how is it that light can mix with darkness? And the answer comes back to us. There's only one way. And it's just not one way of many ways. It really is the only way. Let's look at these three things together. First, let's note from these verses what is true of those in the darkness. 
So as I said, John gives us four, if we say, statements. And some of them are false. Now if some of them are false, some of them are true. But the question becomes, by whose standard are they false? I mean, I could, if I wanted to, totally ignore all that John has said about God being light and that there is darkness in me and totally reject any idea that flows from that about my need of forgiveness. I can do that because that's what millions of people do all over the world and in your workplace and in your school community and your neighbourhood. They ignore the truth that is written about them. They reject the call to face up to God and acknowledge their sin and in doing so they also ignore their conscience and live as though everything between them and God is quite fine because after all, They're a good person and they're certainly not as bad as someone else like someone in jail. Is that you? Are you in that group of people on the broad and wide road that Jesus speaks of whose destination is to be away from God because right now you don't want to face up to the fact that you're a sinner? You don't want to acknowledge that. You don't care about that. Is that you? Well, there were certainly people who thought like that in John's day and we meet some of them. That the truth about your sin and my sin is never going to be found in what you or I think about your sin or what I think about my sin, but in what God thinks about your sin. See, you can go to a counsellor and you can tell them all about your sins and they might say to you, what are you worried about? What's the problem? It's your upbringing. You can't do anything about your past. Just go out there and enjoy whatever it is you want to do. See, it matters not whether this one says my sin is excusable or this one says my sin is natural or this one says my sin is normal. It's not what man says that counts at all. It's what God sees and how God sees it that counts for eternity. So the first false claim John speaks about is made by those who claim they can mix light and darkness together. John says, if we claim to have fellowship with God, yet continue to walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. What does John say about this? Well, if we can mix darkness and light together, we're lying. He's not referring to a person who sometimes falls into sin, but a person who continues to habitually live a life of sin as a way of life. That's the way they live. A person who is not at all travelling in God's direction, not one who is travelling towards God the right way but stumbles and falls from time to time. No, but someone who's walking away from God. It's important that we grasp that because many a new young believer has come unstuck because they've been taught that any sin after their conversion, their conversion is evidence that they're not converted. On the other hand, the Bible's view of things is that we ought not to sin, but there is forgiveness if we do. 
John is describing someone who makes a claim that sin and God can be balanced, that you can follow him and follow your sinful desires at the same time. The next false claim is verse 8, which says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This claim has its, has its basis the lie that the person has been able to eradicate sin from their life completely. The verb is in the present tense, which means that this person claims that though he was once all in darkness, now he is all in the light. What does John say? If we say this, we are deceived. And deceived I nearly was. Back in 1980, when our lunchtime Christian meeting at university the speaker told us that he had not sinned for nearly five years. I was impressed at first, but I think I knew of enough of the scriptures as a young Christian to doubt that this could be true. Now that I think about it, I would have loved to know if the man's wife could verify his claim. While our aim as we follow Jesus must be perfection and there needs to be progression in holiness, while we're here in this body on earth, that aim cannot be realised until we lay off this earthly body and are fully transformed at the resurrection. And from what I read in the scriptures, the more people of God come closer to the light and grow more and more in holiness, the more the light reveals deeper sins, ingrained sins, those hard-to-get-out sins that stick so close. The third false claim is in verse 10, which says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. How does this differ from the last claim? Like this, the tense used is the perfect tense, which means the claim is not just, I am not in the darkness, but I have never, ever been in the darkness. That is to say, I've not reached perfection, I've always had perfection. I've always had it. That, in spite of the Bible's overwhelming testimony, is that all of us, all of us accepting the Lord Jesus, all of us have sinned, all of us fall short of the glory of God. See the progressive results of these false claims? Verse 6, we lie. Verse 8, we are deceived. Verse 10, we are saying that God is a liar. It's one thing for man to lie. It's another thing for a man to make out that he's telling the truth and saying God lies. To claim that you can mix light and darkness together is false. But John doesn't leave it there, does he? He also writes of those who are not deluded by their own sense of inner purity or perfection or sinlessness. He also speaks of what is true, secondly, of those in the light. They are also in these verses and they are there as a contrast between because John loves to contrast the false with the right. He loves to contrast the counterfeit with the true. He loves to speak negatively about certain matters so that we might see that the opposite is the truth and in doing so help the truth to stand out. I like the story of the pensioner couple who lived in a small coal miner's hut close to the coal mine in town. They'd lived there for years with no electricity. 
and very little natural incoming light. They kept the place as clean as they could and thought they'd done pretty well with the task until the day when the electricity came through the village and into their house and the lights were switched on for the first time. The kitchen which they'd painted a light colour was no longer the colour that they'd painted and every room was the same. It's all coal dust everywhere. See, when the light comes in, it shows up darkness for what it is. It in itself is visible and it makes other things visible when the light comes in. And so John delights to describe what is true of those who have dealt with their sin by trusting in the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Those who rather than put their head in the sand about their sin, who deny it, have instead faced it and confessed it and been forgiven for it. So John draws these conclusions by these statements that he gives. And there are three. For a start, he says, these people enjoy fellowship with God. The one who claims to walk in the light but is really in darkness knows nothing of the joys of fellowship with God. But those who are in the light and let the light shine into them may walk in the light as he is in the light and the result will be, as chapter 2 goes on to say, they will love their brothers and sisters in Christ and prove to be in the light. Then he says they receive continual cleansing from sin. The one who walks in the light knows the wonder of verse 7 and how it applies to them. The blood of Jesus God's Son cleanses us from all sin and it's the word cleanses that we need to note. Just as you had a wash or a shower this morning, and you use soap to wash the outside of your body and make it clean, and you'll do it so tomorrow and the next day and the next day until you wash no more. So too the blood of Jesus will go on cleansing you over and over and over and over every time you sin. And this word cleanses is in the tense that means it not only does it once, but it keeps on doing it. It will never lose its power, like the bar of soap that will never end. Then third, these people know the way to find cleansing. Those who are in the light not only know the truth about their sin, that they have sinned in the past, that they may sin in the present, and they may well sin in the future, but, and that's a very big but, bold and underlined, They also know the truth of verse 9, God's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you write notes in your Bible, write there next to verse 9, God's bar of soap. That's how he cleanses us. 
That is to say, these people understand that by confessing their sin, rather than ignoring it or attempting to cover over it by facing up to it and by relying on the character and promise of God stated in this verse, they know the daily cleansing from sin as often as is needed. As often as you confess, so shall you be cleansed. Wait, there's more. Thirdly, in these verses, and most importantly, John tells us of what God has done to bring us from darkness into light. And here we come to the first two verses of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Please note with me, if you will, that at the very heart and the centre of these verses and all that John is saying and all that John will write is that the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus for you and in your place, that is to say, the substitutionary death of Jesus is that which meets the demands of God for the sinless perfection that he requires and also meets the demands of his wrath expressed against your sin. You want to be sinlessly perfect? Be in Jesus. See, God being holy, 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 must by extension of his nature have nothing, nothing, nothing to do with sin and must express his wrath and anger against it. That's why the Bible speaks of mankind in our natural state apart from Jesus being under his wrath because of our sin. But here is the wonder of the gospel. Here is where the grace of God shines the brightest. It does so in the cross There, God puts forth his son on the cross to be the one to take our place and receive our punishment. There, God lays all of our sin upon him and all of his wrath upon him. There, God's holiness is seen in that he punished sin and there, God's love is seen in that he did it for sinners. There is the song we sing says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. He is, says John, he is the propitiation for our sins. That is, he is the one who suffered in our place the fullness of the wrath of God against sin and therefore he shields those whose trust is in him from all the wrath of God so that all who put their faith in him are safe and safe forever. There on the cross, says John in his gospel, in these well-known words, God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not 
send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I asked you before to feel the tension between God who is light and us who are darkness. I asked you the question, how can light and darkness be brought together? And here's the answer. God does it himself. God makes a way. It's an amazing way, but it is the only way. The only way when God put all of my sin and all of your sin on Jesus the sin bearer. And God now looks at those who are united by faith to him, who come to him in repentance and faith as being safe forever from his judgment. That's the free offer of forgiveness that's found in the Bible. That's the hope that any one of us who profess faith in Jesus have. It's not that we are good. Think over the words we sang this morning. No list of sins I have not done. It's not about that. It's not that we are better than others. It's not that we have never sinned or that I may have sinned once but now no longer. It's instead that through confession of sin to God, he forgives you on the basis of what Christ, his son, did for you on the cross, just as God sent him to do. And so if you will confess your sins as often as you will do it, God will apply his bar of soap to cleanse you. The blood of Christ cleanses and goes on cleansing from all sin. Will you come to him for cleansing if you've never done that? Will you come to him? And if you have done that, will you taste again and see again the Lord is Good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Light and darkness, blood and soap. Let's pray. We give you thanks and glory and great praise, our loving God, for the gospel, the good news that even though we were once in darkness, by your wonderful grace, you came up with a solution, a wonderful solution, an amazing solution, by which your son would take all our sin and give us all his righteousness. We confess before you that darkness lives in us. But we also confess 
that the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us and goes on cleansing us from this darkness. Help us as we come to the Lord's table. Help us to think this through, to know that we have been forgiven and if not, to take hold of your offer of forgiveness which is given so freely, so wonderfully in your word to all who will come and wash themselves in the fountain of your love. These things we pray for ourselves and for all who are listening that we might all rejoice in the wonderful grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.